This morning's scripture reading is Romans 8, 16 through 21, which can be found on page 944 of the Pew Bible, Romans 8, 16 through 21. Please stand for the reading of God's word. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. This is God's word. Well, good morning and happy new year, a blessed new year to all of you. What a privilege it's been for us as a family to worship with you for the past year and a half, to sit under the ministry of God's Word at College Church, and what a special privilege to begin 2012 by having an opportunity to preach that Word. If you've been part of the College Church family, you know that uh, during the fall over the past several months, we've been enjoying, if that's the right word for it, a series of sermons in Ecclesiastes. I put it that way, not because the preaching hasn't been good, because you know it has been, but because Ecclesiastes, frankly, can be a rather depressing book. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Do you remember that? That's the way the book begins, and also the way the book ends. You get to the last chapter, and you find basically the same message repeated all over again, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And in between, you get a lot of sobering comments about the weariness of work and the emptiness of pleasure and the meaninglessness of life and the inevitability of death. I sometimes think of Ecclesiastes as the only book of the Bible we know was written on a Monday morning. (laughs) Although I realize it would have been Sunday back in Old Testament days. As I thought about what to preach this morning, it occurred to me that Ecclesiastes would be the right place to begin. I mean, what better way to begin the new year than by talking about the emptiness of life? If you want a good perspective on 2012, what about this? From Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 9, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Now, I realize that's not the whole story. You know that if you were here this fall. Ultimately, the book of Ecclesiastes has a positive perspective on life as long as we live in the fear of God. But this morning, I want to consider the vanity of life and use some verses from the New Testament to put 2012 including its inevitable frustrations and probable sufferings, into eternal perspective. 
And so please turn with me again to Romans chapter 8. Hopefully you still have your Bible open to page 944. We're beginning at verse 16, really, and uh, incidentally, I have Dr. Moody's blessing to be speaking from these verses. And what I want you to notice right from the beginning is the word futility, which you see in verse 20. We could just as well translate that word vanity because it's the same word that the old Jewish scholars used repeatedly when they translated the book of Ecclesiastes from Hebrew into Greek. And I have the feeling that the Apostle Paul wrote these words to the Romans, and when he did so, he had Ecclesiastes in mind. But even if he didn't have it specifically in mind, he is certainly speaking here to the issue of the vanity of life in a fallen world. And so these verses give us a proper perspective on the sufferings of life in 2012. The last number in the calendar year has changed from a straight line to a squiggly line, but if the weather outside is any indication, our problems will be just the same. And maybe the first thing to say about life's troubles is that they are not outside of God's plan. Notice in these verses a number of times that Paul refers to us as the children of God. God is our Father. He has adopted us into his family. He has promised us an inheritance the way a good father would. But he has also told us that we will go through all kinds of trials. Indeed, he has said to us that we must suffer these things if we are ever to enter his glory. We need to know this because sometimes, frankly, the sufferings of life make it hard for us to believe that God really loves us. We see evil around us, and some of that evil has wounded us deeply. We ask God for things in prayer that we do not receive, or at least have not yet received, and so we continue to struggle with some of the same temptations, or with someone who keeps doing us wrong, or with the physical weakness that comes with the maladies of the body. And sometimes we wonder, what kind of father is God anyway if he is letting all of these things happen? And here Paul wants us to know that suffering is part of the Christ-centered, God-blessed life. Yes, we are, are the children of God, he says, with this condition, which you notice at the end of verse 17, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We must go through the vanity of this life before we enter the glory of the life to come. And so far from casting doubt on God's fatherly care for us, suffering actually helps confirm that we really are the children of God. In order for us to receive our glorious inheritance, we must first endure suffering with Christ and for Christ. In his comments on this passage, John Stott pointed out that the vanity here and the glory are inseparable. They are married. They cannot be divorced, he said. They are welded. They cannot be broken apart. Another way to say this is that there is no crown except for those who have carried the cross. And if sometimes we wonder why the Christian life is so difficult and why there is all of this suffering that is part of it, all we need to do is look again to the saving work of Jesus Christ who 
did not enter his resurrection glory until after he underwent the crucifixion, suffering and dying for our sin. First the vanity, then the glory. The the shape of Christ's ministry is set before us as the pattern for the Christian life. And so whether we want it or not, we should not be surprised by suffering. When people walk away from us because of our witness for the gospel, when they get angry with us for doing what we know is right, when we end up in some hard situation, maybe in some difficult part of the world because we are following God's call, we are simply following in the footsteps of Jesus. The very fact that we are suffering with Him and for Him should be a reminder for us that we are destined to share in His glory as the truly beloved children of God. And so here is a first thing that we should do with our suffering. See them as part of the proof of our adoption, that we really are the children of God. But now here is the second thing we should do with our sufferings, and that is to see them in the light of eternity. For I consider, says Paul, beginning in verse 18, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We are taught here to see our present sufferings in the light of eternity. Paul says, consider here, he's not merely expressing his personal opinion, he is giving an informed judgment. The the word that he uses to describe his thinking process comes from the field of accounting. It means that he is making an exact reckoning on the basis of all of the available data. It is his firm conviction, writes one commentator, reached by rational thought on the basis of the gospel. And what Paul considers is that in comparison with that coming glory, our present sufferings are hardly even worth mentioning. If if verse 17 informed us that suffering and glory are not separable, Verse 18 tells us that they are not comparable. And so rather, really, than comparing them, we need to contrast them. Now, it's not to say, of course, that we do not suffer. Paul himself suffered as much as anyone right up to the end of his life when, according to the most reliable historical records, he was crucified for Christ. And yet, he refused to let suffering have the last word or to give it any more weight than it deserved. And so Paul set the vanity of this life over against the glory of the life to come. And to help us see our troubles in the light of eternity, he gives us a couple of very good reasons, his considerations for thinking that our present sufferings are comparatively minimal. To begin with, heavenly glory will last much longer than earthly sorrows. There's a contrast here in verse 18 between the now and the later. And by speaking of the sufferings of this present time, the Word of God is setting a sort of boundary on our troubles. However difficult our present circumstances may be, whatever physical or emotional pain we happen to go through, these trials will not last forever. After we have suffered a little while, Paul says, and uh, Peter says to us in First Peter chapter 5, a similar thought. God will call us home to his eternal glory. 
And when that day comes, for those who know Jesus in a personal and saving way, there will be no more death or crying or pain ever again. And furthermore, that glory to come is infinitely greater than any present suffering. Elsewhere, Paul says this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This this was Paul's way of thinking. You you couldn't really compare the the sufferings of this earthly life to the glory to come. The the point is not simply that one day the suffering will end when the glory begins, but also that when that glory comes, it will be so massive that it will outweigh all of our pain. Outweigh is a good word to use when we are thinking about the glory of God. Because the old Hebrew word for glory was closely associated with the word for heaviness, the glory of God. You might think of it this way, as the weightiness of His divine being. You, you aggregate all of His infinite perfections. You see them shining in absolute majesty. And one day you will see all of that and it will counterbalance all of the suffering of this life. This is something to remind ourselves of when we are frustrated by the troubles of life. It's easy to get so caught up in our problems that we start to believe they will never end. I have to confess that I woke up on the first day of this year already thinking about all of the things that need to be done this week and then next week and how can all the things that need to be done in January get done, those kinds of thoughts. Sometimes we need to look at our troubles in life and do what Paul did and speak to ourselves the promise of the coming glory and put all of the sorrows of this life into that perspective. Don't let your troubles interpret themselves, but reason with your earthly sorrows on the basis of God's promises in the gospel. That's the kind of consideration, the kind of reckoning that Paul is doing here. Let me give you an illustration of what it might mean to look beyond a present darkness to see the coming glory. This week our family was in Colorado, and often when we've been out there driving across the plains near the Rocky Mountains where you have miles and miles of perspective, I have seen in the distance a rainstorm. You see a place somewhere out on the horizon, you can tell that the rain is streaming down, you see the dark clouds there, and on occasion, the sunshine is striking the edge of that storm, and you can see a rainbow arcing away from the storm. Now, if you're under those storm clouds, you don't have the perspective of that glory. You're just under the rain. The the clouds are the only things that you can see. As far as you can see, from that perspective, it is raining everywhere in the world. From where they are standing, they cannot see what I can see, that the sun is still shining above them, that soon the storm will pass, and everything will be sunshine and light. Now, in order for them to see that, the storm would have to pass. And yet, they can still, even in that moment, believe that the sun is shining and that the storm will pass. They can take it by faith. If they consider their circumstances carefully, if they reason on the basis of what they know to be true about the world the way that God has made it, they don't have to wait to believe that this storm will pass and soon the sunshine will come again. 
Now maybe you are still under a cloud, a cloud that has fallen upon you this past year, or maybe already in the first day of this year you see troubles on the horizon. But as you consider those sufferings, take a lens that opens wide enough to encompass eternity. Remind your soul, even if it is hard to believe, that suffering is only temporary and that one day it will not weigh even one milligram compared to the glory of God which he has planned to reveal to his people. And we know all of this to be true, of course, because it is in God's word, but we also see it in the saving work of Jesus Christ. The suffering and glory that Paul talks about for us in verse 18 are closely connected to the suffering and glory mentioned in verse 17 where everything is connected to Christ. Jesus truly suffered all of his life, starting in the manger but ending on the cross. And then for three days he remained under the power of death and under its darkness. But those sufferings lasted only a little while and soon the glory dawned on the morning of the resurrection and Jesus came out of the grave with the power of eternal life. By faith we believe that his experience will be our experience, that it is the template for our salvation. Soon this light and temporary sorrow will give way to weighty and everlasting glory. Now at this point, we might expect Paul to, in some way, minimize the pain of earthly sorrow. But instead here, and perhaps surprisingly, he does exactly the opposite. He intensifies it by showing us the sufferings of the entire universe. Here's another way of thinking about the structure of this passage. He's shown us the suffering and the glory of Christ. That's in verse 17. He's gone on to speak about our own suffering and glory. That's in verse 18. And then he goes on to show us the suffering and the glory of the whole creation. And so here is a third thing we should do with our suffering, and that is to see it in connection with what God is doing in the whole creation. We are so self-focused, we usually think our problems are the only problems that matter, but here they're shown to be part of a much bigger problem that really is affecting the entire creation. It would be foolish for us to think, therefore, that there is any place in this universe where we can stand outside of suffering. And to show how global this groaning is, Paul uses a literary device known as personification. Personification. He shows creation doing the kinds of things that we usually think of people doing. He uses verbs for human actions. And so we see creation here waiting and expecting and groaning and getting frustrated and in the end being set free. It's almost a way of the apostle saying that creation feels our pain. And so let's look for a moment beyond our own sufferings to see the frustrations of the whole creation. Verse 20 tells us that the creation has been subjected to futility. This is the part that ought to sound very familiar to us if we've been working our way through the book of Ecclesiastes. Futility means emptiness, meaninglessness, vanity, 
Truly, there is nothing new under the sun. Life, life is always the same old, same old. And it always ends the same way, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. And even at the very best moments, life never seems fully to live up to its God-ordained purpose or its God-given potential. It's all vanity. Verse 21 says that in addition to all of this futility, creation also suffers bondage to corruption or decay, as some translations have it. And so the problem is with creation is not simply frustration, but also disintegration. Things fall apart. Time is running out. The universe is winding down. And so everywhere we look, conception and birth and growth are followed by decline and decay and death. We witnessed this on our drive back from Colorado to Illinois. I can't explain it, but uh, we saw maybe as many as a dozen beautiful hawks dead beside the road. Uh, just seemed every 10 or 15 or 20 miles through Nebraska and Iowa, we saw another beautiful bird dead beside the road. And what, hap- what happens to those magnificent birds will happen to every living creature. Indeed, the whole creation is destined for destruction. It's all very painful. Verse 22, Paul will go on to personify creation as a woman in labor, groaning in the pains of her childbirth. And this groaning is global. There are animals that feel this pain, not simply from injury or attack, but sometimes from farming practices that place a higher priority on financial profit than animal welfare. It happens to the the inanimate things of creation as well, places where we have taken from the earth without planting and replenishing and nurturing and cultivating the ground as a gift from God. These are the kinds of things that happen to creation in a fallen world. In one of his tales from Lake Wobegon, Garrison Keillor describes a childhood experience that taught him the difference between the proper use and the sinful abuse of creation. It was slaughtering day on the family hog farm, and Keeler was out by one of the holding pens with one of his cousins. And as the boys watched the pigs, they began to taunt them, and then taunt them because they knew that they were doomed for destruction, and then to throw sticks and stones at them. I mean, they were only pigs, and they were about to die anyway. What did it really matter? And then... One of the uncles came over, one of the uncles who was involved in the slaughter, and he lit into those boys in a way that Keeler never forgot. You see, it is one thing to kill an animal humanely for food, but something different to mistreat an animal for personal enjoyment. And when we fail to understand the difference, as people often do, our sin makes creation groan. Those are merely examples of the principle that Paul gives here as a universal, that creation itself has been subjected to the futility of a fallen world. And there's a simple reason for all of this vanity and futility and bondage and death and decay. It all goes back to humanity's fall into sin. What you see here in Romans 8 flows directly from Genesis 3, where God pronounced His curse against our sin. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and to the man, 
Cursed is the ground because of you all the days of your life. The sufferings of this fallen world are the judgment of God. And the way Romans 8 describes this for us is very important to understand. The creation, notice verse 20, was subjected to futility for what purpose? Not willingly, not because the creation wanted these things, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Now, who do you suppose that Paul is talking about when he speaks about someone subjecting creation to frustration? Who is responsible for that? Well, at first you might think he's talking about Adam. It was Adam's sin that brought death into the world, and with death, the corruption we see all around us. But that's not who Paul has in mind. One thing, Adam was only a man. He didn't have the power to bring creation under his control, and he certainly didn't sin in hope, which verse 20 gives is the reason for creation's frustration. And so we have to conclude here that God himself has subjected creation to vanity. He's the one who has the power to place the world into subjection to anything. And when the Scripture says that He has, in fact, done this, it is showing us that God is still in control, that even suffering is under His sovereignty, that in some mysterious way our pain is part of His ultimately purposeful plan. Notice that God has done this for a hopeful purpose. Think of it this way, when humanity first sinned, God could have destroyed this world in an instant. He could have put Adam to death immediately. Instead, he suspended Adam's sentence and graciously permitted the world to continue in sin, opening up the possibility that you would need to write a book like Ecclesiastes to explain all of it until the day would come when he himself would enter into that futility and come to redeem us in the person of his son. We've been singing about this in some of our carols at Christmas time. We see the, the Christ child in the manger, and we ask the question, why lies he in such mean estate. In other words, what is the Son of God doing in an Ecclesiastes kind of world? And here is the answer that God has put the creation in subjection to futility in hope that the day would come when His Son would turn our vanity into glory. God has delayed His judgment. That has meant pain in the world in anticipation of the end of that pain with a new heavens and a new earth, the the recreation of the cosmos. And so the Scripture says that God has subjected creation to frustration in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Here is the creation around us bearing marks of the fall, death, destruction. But this world is also destined for life and for freedom. And Paul's talking here partly about the people that God has made, but also about the creation around us, the world that God has made. He will not abandon us together to futility. But the frustration of creation will meet its termination when we gain our liberation. And according to Romans 8, the creation can hardly wait 
There are times when our sufferings are so painful we wish that Jesus would hurry up and come again, whether it's the last day of the year or the first day of the year. Sometimes we are so frustrated we want this weary life to be over. Sometimes we're afraid of what is about to happen. We wish God would intervene before it does happen. And we are not the only ones. Creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, with a kind of hushed expectancy. The world around us is awaiting the disclosure of a coming glory. The word Paul uses to express this expectancy means, as one commentator describes it, to wait with the head raised and the eye fixed on that point of the horizon from which the expected object is to come. Maybe you've heard the memorable paraphrase of J.B. Phillips that creation is waiting on tiptoe for the coming of Christ. Sometimes when I'm sitting in the pew, I draw pictures for my younger children to illustrate the sermon. Not very good pictures, my children would quickly tell you. But I was proud of one picture that I drew right here at College Church a few years ago. I think Jay Thomas was preaching from this very passage, and I drew a globe with legs and with feet standing on tiptoe, and I had arms coming out from the globe, reaching up to heaven with a sense of expectancy, a happy globe waiting for its redemption. Friends, are you discouraged by the sufferings of this fallen world. Jesus himself has entered into the frustration of creation. He has suffered and died for sin in this place. And when his great day comes, the vanity of life will be over forever. And God will make all things new. Lift your eyes up to that far horizon. Catch some glimpse by faith in the word of God of the coming glory. See your sufferings in the light of that eternity. I was thinking of the coming of the light, and I was reminded of something that Hudson Armerding once said. He formerly was president of Wheaton College, often worshipped and preached in this church. He died, what was it, a year ago, something more than that. And when he did, people remembered that the way, the way that Dr. Armerding once spoke about death Sometimes people think of birth as the sunrise and death as the sunset, but Dr. Armerding pointed to Proverbs 4, verse 11, which says, The path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. And then he commented that if God's promise is true, death is not the sunset for us. We are walking into the sunrise. Here is something to remember. In 2012, when the way seems dark and dreary, when we are overwhelmed by a world and its pain, everyone who believes in the Son of God is walking out of this vain darkness and into the endless, glorious light. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for this great truth of the coming glory. And Father, we commit to you this coming year, which will surely be in many ways as vain as the last one, and yet as full of hope as ever, because of Jesus, because of the cross, 
because of the resurrection, because of the coming glory. And it's in his name that we commit this year to you. Amen.